Welcome back to Spoiler Free Wrestling. I'm your host, Ian, and we are talking all the news that took place over the last week in pro wrestling, and it was a huge week in pro wrestling. There was two really big shows, and we lost a legend. We lost an absolute legend of pro wrestling this week, or last week, excuse me, when we lost Pat Patterson at 79 years of age. And he really is, I mean, if you look at people who have been influential in pro wrestling, Pat Patterson is at, he's not the top of that list, but he's near the top of that list. And that's mainly because for years he was Vince McMahon's right-hand man. He started working backstage in pro wrestling Around the time that Vince McMahon Jr. was taking WWF at that time national. Patterson's in-ring career took place in a whole other era in wrestling. He started in the late 50s, in the late 1950s in Montreal. And in the early 60s, he then moved to the United States. And he was wrestling out in the Pacific Northwest, kind of around Portland, Uh, for Don Owen's promotion. And then a few years later, he moved out to San Francisco, where he wrestled for big-time wrestling out there and teamed with Ray Stevens as the Blonde Bombers. That team would go on to win the NWA Tag Team Championships twice. So Patterson would, uh, he'd, you know, wrestle with the Blonde Bombers for the mid to late 60s, then in the early 70s, Ray Stevens turned babyface and he feuded with Pat Patterson for a bit. Then by 1972, Patterson had turned babyface as well. And then when we get into the mid to the late 70s, he started to move away from, from the San Francisco territory with big time wrestling. And he would do stuff out like he was out in the AWA for a little bit at the real sort of end of his career. And him and Stevens reformed the Blonde Bombers in the AWA. They actually won the AWA tag team titles again in 1978. And they would hold them for, I don't know, like half a year or something like that. And then they lost them to Vern Gagne and and Mad Dog Vachon. So that's all in the late 70s. And then around that time... Oh, he also wrestled out in Florida a little bit around that time too. But then fast forward to 1979... And Pat Patterson starts working for Vince McMahon Sr. And he was a heel at the time and he would challenge, he was one of the heels that would challenge Bob Backlund for for the WWF title at that time. And then in 1979, WWE invented a title out of thin air. And they pretended that this championship had, uh, they pretended that a tournament was held in Brazil to determine the first ever intercontinental championship. The the tournament never happened because you could do stuff like that. Like imagine trying to do something like that now. Imagine if WWE was like, well, we just held a tournament in Brazil. And then you'd have all these fans on Twitter from Brazil going like, no, no, you didn't. But anyway, you could do this kind of thing in 1979 And so he was the first ever Intercontinental Champion. He would lose it the following spring to Ken Patera. Many of you might remember Ken Patera. He was a big star in the 80s and uh, had quite a run with with both senior and junior McMahon. Uh, So that would take us into 1980. He kind of kept wrestling for a little bit, periodically appearing in the AWA as well. But then when you get to about the mid-80s, and Vince McMahon Jr. is taking over from his father, this is when Pat Patterson starts to be less in the ring and more backstage. And he also did some work on commentary as well. And it's interesting, like, Pat Patterson didn't start working backstage in WWE until he was in his mid-40s and had been in the wrestling business for a quarter century already. And it's just interesting, like, different fans are going to remember him for different contributions to wrestling, right? Like if you were a fan from the territorial era, 
what you loved about Pat Patterson was what he contributed in the ring and what he and Ray Stevens did as a tag team. But the people who remember the 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 seventies, the sixties, and the sixties or the seventies in terms of wrestling, I mean, those fans are are much older today. And the majority of wrestling fans now that are under the age of fifty, they're gonna know Pat Patterson mainly for what he contributed for what he contributed to WWE. And casual fans are gonna remember Pat Patterson more for the on-screen appearances he made during his backstage career, like when he was with the Stooges and Gerald Briscoe. Little known fact, actually a fairly known fact, but uh, at one point, Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson held the all-time like segment ratings record, like the highest-rated segment in wrestling history for a period, or in WWE history. The highest-rated segment was an evening gown match between Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson. Now, eventually, that would be... Uh, was it that, or was it a street fight with the... It, might, it was either an evening gown match with Gerald Briscoe, or it was Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson versus the Mean Street Posse. It was one of those two things. But it was like a ridiculous segment that you would never expect would be the, the biggest rating draw in wrestling history up until that point, but it was. And then a little while later, the Rock and Mankind's This Is Your Life segment would uh, top it. But just sort of an interesting note there that, like, you know, Pat Patterson at one point held held the all-time segment ratings record. I think that's kind of interesting. But it's also interesting the way that his entire in-ring career was in the territorial era. But then the second he moves backstage, he's working side by side with the guy who's totally upending the territorial era and in many ways destroying it and replacing it with a new national model. And, you know, it, it's just it's just interesting to think that that's how Pat Patterson's career went from like a territorial wrestler to a guy who worked backstage when the territorial era was being dismantled and like what, what must have it, what must it have felt like you're in your mid forties, you had a 25 year career in the ring and now you're part of this team that's sort of knocking down the territories and replacing it with the national model. I mean, that's the mid eighties was such an interesting time for pro wrestling. It was such a pivotal time for pro wrestling. All sort of stemming from this idea that instead of being a regional promotion, we can get ourselves on cable TV and go national, like baseball or basketball or hockey or football, you know, we can we can cover the whole country. And that's, you know, Pat Patterson played a key role in in I mean, like Vince McMahon had his plan and he was gonna do it. How much Pat Patterson was was in on that part of Vince McMahon's plan? I mean, who knows? Um, I think a lot of it was hatched before Vince took over the company from his father. But a lot of the things that Pat Patterson gets credited for in terms of his contributions backstage is, you know, he was a big proponent for Bret Hart. And I don't know if Bret Hart would have had the career that he did had it not been for Pat Patterson's backing. Same goes for Shawn Michaels. Really, when the Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania era ended, I mean, Patterson, you know, was the one who sort of pushed for the best wrestlers to kind of to kind of be in that role, you know? And that's sort of something that I think stayed with him throughout his career. He was always a big supporter of the Canadian wrestlers as well, especially the French Canadian wrestlers like Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn being from Montreal and having made that journey, you know, leaving Quebec where you don't know how to speak much English or in his case, any English at all. You know, I don't, I don't know that Kevin Owens could speak English very well. Um, you know, when he started his wrestling career. I don't know if Sami Zayn could. So I think maybe Pat Patterson understood or understands what the Quebec wrestlers, you know, go through leaving leaving the province and trying to make it in other territories. So I think he was always a big supporter of French-Canadian wrestlers. He's obviously like a huge role model for, uh, you know, gay and lesbian wrestlers and providing... Uh, representation for 
for for for all fans, right? Like you, you know, and I think Pat Patterson's success in the wrestling industry provided representation for um, gay athletes at a time where other industries and other sports weren't really providing that type of representation or inclusion. And I remember thinking, like years later. Uh, or like many, many years later, WWE got some publicity for Darren Young, um, you know, coming out and, and, and WWE said, you know, he was their first active out gay wrestler, which of course everybody, unless you're a casual WWE fan, you knew that wasn't true. You knew that like, like, what are you talking about? You know, there's, um, and that, nothing against Darren Young, you know, he was just going along with what WWE wanted to do. And maybe it was a case that, like, Pat Patterson wasn't out in the sense that he was speaking in newspapers about it or speaking in the media about it, but everybody knew. Um, so maybe that's the difference between uh, what WWE meant when Darren Young, you know, came out and, when, and Pat Patterson's whole career. But uh, definitely... When you you listen to gay wrestlers talk about Pat Patterson, I mean, he he obviously has provided sort of an an inspiring role for them. And we've seen, you know, wrestlers like uh, Sonya Deville or Jake Atlas or, you know, whoever have mentioned the role that Pat Patterson played in them deciding to get into the wrestling business. So, like, look at all these areas that Pat Patterson has impacted throughout his career. As a wrestler, quarter century of a career in the territorial era, worked backstage for WWE during arguably the most pivotal time in that company's history, or in even pro wrestling's history, that switch from territory to national. He's a role model for gay athletes. He's a role model for francophone wrestlers from Quebec. He's uh, played a pivotal role in Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, The Rock, um is the mind behind the Royal Rumble. All of these things, all of these things Pat Patterson did in what was essentially 60 years in the wrestling business. 60. So take what Chris Jericho has done, his 30 years in wrestling, and double it. And that's what Pat Patterson has put into the wrestling business. So when he passed away recently, I mean, you don't want to compare reactions between you know wrestlers passing away, but... Um, you know, when Pat Patterson passed away, the, the wrestling industry stopped, right? Like, like in terms of, um, the tributes that went out on all the shows and not just like a, like a little graphic at the start of the show, there was tributes throughout the shows, you know, whether it was John Moxley dropping that line about making the crowd go banana on AEW, whether it was the... Six-man match on SmackDown with all Intercontinental Champions and the original Intercontinental title belt at ringside. And just everything that's been on social media. That is a testament to just how impactful a legacy Pat Patterson is leaving to pro wrestling. Outside of the passing of... Pat Patterson, there was some huge stories in pro wrestling this week. And we have to start with AEW Winter is Coming. Because AEW Winter is Coming was the most newsworthy show the promotion's ever done. It was, it really had a Raw after WrestleMania feel to it in that it was about laying the groundwork for the storylines that the promotion is going to be running with for the foreseeable future, you know? And so like you go back to full gear, full gear was a pay-per-view in the sense, well, I mean, it was a pay-per-view in the sense that you had to pay to view it. Um, But it was also like, I mean, pay-per-views end storylines, right? Like they, they're for the culmination of a storyline. And yeah, you'll start some new ones or, or, or things like that. But like, the idea is you build up this match and then you give it to him on the pay-per-view. And that's why the Raw after WrestleMania every year has been such an eventful show because all of these storylines end at WrestleMania and then the night after WrestleMania, 
you start with the new ones and you start to get an idea of where the promotion's going to be for the next few months. And that's what Winter is Coming was. There was kind of like a mix though, right? Like it was a pay-per-view and a Raw after WrestleMania storyline developing episode. Because there definitely were, I mean, let's see, did anything get like settled at Winter is Coming? Not in the Dynamite Dozen or Dynamite Dynamite Diamond Battle Royal. Things weren't settled there. We've got more questions than answers. And mainly that match was about the inner circle and where they're going. Uh, the women's match, we had the pull apart uh, at the end there. So we've got like a, like a new angle building there. Like everything, you know, is kind of new. And in, within the same hour, we had Sting showing up in AEW, which is a huge deal, obviously. A world title change and the start of a promotional warfare angle. All within an hour. Like, I, I think so. I think Sting was out after nine on that show. But if not within an hour, pretty close to within an hour. So let's just start with Sting, though. Sting comes out and it's... um. There's a, a segment involving the members of Team Taz and the members of the American Nightmare family. Team Taz has the Nightmare family dead to rights. The lights go off. On the Videotron, we see a blizzard and mountains and snow coming off of trees. And if you've read the newsletter slash magazine we have up on the website, you might have read that when this happened, when they started to show these images, one name went through my head. And it might be because I'm watching so much old Attitude Era or, or Monday Night War Era Nitro, but I thought Glacier was coming out. Ray Lloyd Glacier. That guy. I thought it made sense that he would be the guy to make a big save that Winter is coming. I had no idea Sting was coming out. Obviously, Sting's much better and a much bigger deal. But I thought, you know, you're showing glaciers and mountains. And I thought, well, you know, and Glacier, by the way, has been on an AEW show. He was in the Over the Budget Battle Royal uh, on Double or Nothing in 2019. And Ray Lloyd is sort of friends with the Rhodes families. He trained some wrestlers out in Georgia as well. So I thought, oh, hey, this makes all the sense in the world that Glacier would come out. And I wasn't even upset about it. I was fine with it. I was like, all right, cool, Glacier. What an interesting moment. But then when Sting came out, when Sting came out, obviously what I thought was going to happen sucks in comparison. But Sting coming out is, I think, another example of the fact that Tony Khan is not really interested in competing with NXT. Tony Khan wants to compete with WWE. Tony Khan, like, when you bring in a Sting, when you invest that kind of money, because Sting doesn't come cheap. If you're investing in a Sting, you have big plans. And maybe the deal with Sting was just some type of merchandising deal where they, they you know, each get a percentage of royalties or something like that. So maybe they're not investing all that much into him. But still, putting Sting on your show is a big deal. Having Sting on your show is a big deal. It was the first time Sting has been on TNT since he wrestled Ric Flair in the last ever episode of WCW Nitro. And so there is that connection to the past of wrestling on TNT. And there is that just connection to wrestling's past. Sting is one of the most recognizable non-WWE wrestlers of all time. So I think it, it does sort of send the message that AEW is major league. You know, like, it's like, you know, Sting's a major league wrestler. You know, Sting is a legend. You know, he brings this major league presence with him to whatever show that he's going on. So when Sting showed up on AEW, it was sort of like sending the message to all the fans saying like, we're the big boys. We're where the big boys play, as WCW used to say. It was, it, it was a big deal for them. And then 
not 24 hours after Sting comes on AEW television, Pro Wrestling Tees comes out and says that the Sting AEW merchandise has broken records. Broken the all-time records of, of sales within 24 hours, and it wasn't even 24 hours when they, when they announced that. And so now you've got Sting merchandise flying off the shelves right before the holiday season. And that's great for AEW, whose entire revenue streams is coming from TV advertising and quarterly pay-per-views. And I mean, they're making money off that, but obviously they've got to try and make up for the money they're losing uh, by not having live gates at any other show. Well, they have live gates, but they're only letting in like 500 fans or something like that. They used to have crowds of 10,000. And in addition to the, to the tickets that those 10,000 would sell, they're also buying merchandise. Uh, so merchandise sales go down if you're not touring. Um, but when you're Sting and you come onto AEW Dynamite and it's the first time you've been on TNT since 2001. It's the first time you've been on wrestling since, I don't know, that, uh, I, it, is it the first time he's been on, like, wrestling since Survivors? That time he wrestled Seth Rollins and almost got paralyzed? So regardless, fans hadn't seen him in a while. And now not only was he just on, like, he wasn't just there to do, like, a one-off, like, if Stone Cold Steve Austin is coming on Raw now, you know he's just going to come in, drink a few beers, and then you won't see him again for a couple of years. Sting comes in, and I like that the whole, everything just in the ring stopped. Sting's there, Team Taz gets the heck out. Sting just walks up, and he ominously walks over to Arn Anderson, and he does the same to, to Cody. Or, no, sorry, he goes, he does it by age. He goes... Arn Anderson's the, uh, you know, his big career was in the 80s. Dustin Rhodes was sort of in the 90s. Cody's modern, Darby's the future. And so he went oldest to youngest. He just walked over to Arn, walked over to Dustin, walked over to Cody, walked over to Darby. And so, and now he's booked to have a speaking segment on Dynamite. So we got to see where that goes, which should should be pretty interesting. And I think we'll have a better idea of what Sting is to AEW after Wednesday. I think he's going to tell us. He's If he's having a speaking segment, it's probably likely he's going to mention what it is he's doing in AEW. Now compare this to NXT, something that NXT did a little while ago, which really bothered me. So they advertised that Finn Balor was going to be on the show and he was going to finally speak. But then he just came out, said nothing. And Pat McAfee came out, interrupted him, and then Finn introduced the Undisputed Era and left, and we haven't seen him since. So regardless, we'll find out more about what Sting's going to do in AEW on Dynamite. But in terms of, like, creating a wrestling moment, you know? And, like, how much is, is wrestling about creating moments, right? Like, things that you always remember. And that 20 years later, you go and you talk about like, ah, can you remember that time that, you know, Vince McMahon was revealed as the higher power. Wrestling moments aren't always good, but, you know. Uh, (laughs) And this was a a true legitimate wrestling moment created by AEW. The idea of like, where were you, you know, when Sting debuted for AEW? And because he did it in 2020, we were all on our couches. But still, it was a big moment for AEW. And it's going to be interesting to see how they can capitalize off this, too. Very, very rarely in wrestling, and I bet it'll never happen again, that somebody wins the world title, then promises they're going to show up with it on another wrestling promotions television show the next week, and somehow that story is only the third biggest of the week. But that's the case this week, as Kenny Omega won the AEW World Championship at Winter is Coming by utilizing underhanded methods. So, basically, here's the story. Go back to 2019 full gear. Kenny Omega and Jon Moxley have the deathmatch of all deathmatches. 
they actually got fined by the Maryland Athletic Commission for using too much violent stuff. I'm not sure exactly what the Maryland Athletic Commission said, but too much violent stuff seems like an accurate um, summation. Summary? I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, that match was ruled too violent, and that played into the storyline here between Kenny Omega and John Moxley a year later in 2020. So after that match, Omega sort of spirals a little. He loses another match to Pac. He's out of the title title picture for a year. And Hangman Page had, you know, both Hangman Page and, and Kenny Omega had lost to Chris Jericho in important matches at a time when Chris Jericho was the AW world champion last year. And neither of them were going to get another title match. So it made sense that they joined forces and went to the tag team division. So that took Omega just out of the game, out of the world title picture uh, up until just a few months ago when they lost the titles to FDR and uh, then entered that title eliminator tournament. And then Omega beat Paige in the finals. So now we have Paige versus, or sorry, uh, Omega versus Moxley too. But when Omega comes out to you know, challenge Moxley after Moxley's defeated Eddie Kingston and Omega defeated Paige earlier in the night. This is full gear. Omega kind of pointed to all the plunder around and said like, you know, none of this, you know. And the idea was, we're going to have a traditional wrestling match. No weapons, no whatever. And we're going to see who's the better wrestler under those rules. You know, you you beat me in the death match, but I can beat you in traditional rules. It was kind of what Kenny Omega was saying. But then we get to the actual match and there's some chicanery at the end. So Moxley gives Omega the paradigm shift and Omega kind of falls back into the heater. Then some refs sort of gather around Omega and the idea is he's hurt. Then Don Callis, who has been on commentary for the last two of Omega's matches and has a long-standing established friendship with Omega. So Callis comes down to check on Omega too. Moxley's like, I'm not having any of this shit. And he comes and he just grabs Omega and tosses him back in the ring, which makes all the sense in the world. Because if you're in a world title match and somebody's too hurt on the outside to continue, well then you should win the match or just don't let them pause the match. Go grab your Grab your opponent and throw him in the ring. And that's what Moxley did. But then Callis gets up on the ring apron. He's got a microphone. He's like, he's hurt. What are you doing? Stop. He touches Moxley, kind of grabs him on the shoulder. Moxley turns around, shoves Callis. As he shoves Callis, the microphone, either Callis threw it or it went flying into the ring where Omega grabs it. Omega uses the microphone, which is a weapon. The thing they agreed not to use. And Omega clonks Moxley on the head with it, busts Moxley wide open. Series of V-triggers, one-winged angel, gets the pin. Kenny Omega is the new AEW world champion. But it's not even over there. So you, you would, like, at Winter's Coming, you've already got Sting debuts. You've got a new world champion in Kenny Omega. And now, what the heck, let's introduce a promotional warfare angle at, you know, just after. So you've got these three huge things happening within an hour of each other. So Omega just gets up. There's like no cell. Well, there's like a little bit of celebrating. Callus leads Omega away. So it's clear like Callus is leading this whole thing. And he sort of grabs Omega by the arm and they jet through the tunnel and they jet through the back. And finally, there's a waiting car out there. But um, oh, what's his name? Marvez catches up to them. It's like, what? What's going on here? And Callis says, you want to hear what we have to say? You can hear it on Tuesday night. Marvez says, but Dynamite's on Wednesday night. You know, because that's how people talk, right? <laughs> Tuesday night, but Dynamite's on Wednesday. You said Tuesday, but do you mean Dynamite on Wednesday? And then, you know, Callis is like, no, Tuesday night on Access TV, Impact Wrestling, his show, his show, which is crazy and great. It's crazy and great that this has happened. It makes all the sense in the world from a storyline perspective because we know Omega and Don Callis are friends. 
If you go back to New Japan Pro Wrestling when Don Callis was doing commentary uh, and, and Omega was still there, the entire... Anytime Callis was on commentary for an Omega match, he would play up that there is this friendship between him and Omega. And, which is true. I mean, they go back to the beginning of their careers, and it was Omega that pitched for Callis to um, get the commentary gig with New Japan, and all of that that led to him getting the the gig with Impact Wrestling. So, the connection between Callis and Omega is long st- like, like that's established, and they established it by having Callis on commentary going back to Full Gear. And Callis is an executive at Impact Wrestling. So if he's going, so all of this makes sense, right? Like if wrestling was real, Don Callis might actually try this. Don, like, you know, they, they might say like something like this could conceivably happen. Um, so it makes all the sense in the world. And it's fantastic for wrestling overall. Now, a lot of AEW fans might might go like, Impact, and then use that same voice. Impact, TNA, oh, yeah, like Impact or TNA. Boy, that's how, uh, that's how those voices from uh, BTE are, uh, came to be, I guess. But anyway, that's what, um, yeah, so, so now you've got Omega's going to do this interview segment Tuesday night on, on Access. And we'll find out more about, like, well, all right, what exact role is Impact Wrestling going to play on AEW television? And what role is AEW television going to play on Impact Wrestling? But it shines a bigger spotlight on Impact than they've been used to having shun on them in recent years. So that's good. And it also opens up um, some Impact Wrestlers going to AEW, which I think would add a lot of depth to most notably their women's division. Like if you take AEW's women's division, then you add Taya Valkyrie, Rosemary, Deanna Perrazzo, uh, Jordine Grace, Kira Hogan, Natasha Steele. Like all, all of a sudden these concerns that, that people have about the depth of AEW's women's division, they start to go away, you know, because they've already added a bunch of NWA wrestlers, right? Like you've got Thunder Rosa and Serena Deeb in there. Well, I guess Deeb is now AEW, but she was NWA. Allison Kay is sort of on the peripheral there, could end up. All of a sudden, like, all right, some inroads are being made into improving the depth situation in AEW's women's division. And then you've got tag teams in Impact who would work really well against the top tag teams in AEW. Uh, Ethan Page and Josh Alexander as the North. Um, put them against the top teams in AEW, that'd be fun. Motor City Machine Guns are one of the most influential uh, tag teams of all time. So if you put them against several teams who are in AEW and were influenced by the Motor City Machine Guns earlier in their careers, I think that would be good. Um, and then, of course, you've got Carl Anderson and Doc Gallows, who, I mean, used to be in the Bullet Club with Kenny Omega. Maybe there's going to be some connection there. A lot of doors. A lot of doors opened by this sort of relationship between Impact Wrestling and AEW. We've seen this is the, the the third promotion that they've had this kind of relationship with. AAA in Mexico. Um, the NWA. Now Impact Wrestling. All of a sudden, like, could you get some type of borderless territory system where promotions are sharing talent? That's going to benefit all of those promotions. Everybody benefits when fans get fresher matchups and start to see wrestlers in contexts that they haven't seen them in previously. And then AEW, and you might say like, okay, well, what does AEW benefit from it? They've got the biggest spotlight. They're now sharing their spotlight with smaller companies, but they are getting fresher matchups. They are getting uh, new talent come in. And also, and probably most importantly, AEW is just whatever Tony Khan wants to do. WWE is what's going to make us the most money. What's going to make our shareholders happy. And I'm sure Tony Khan has somebody barking in his ear about money. Maybe it's his dad. Maybe it's somebody else. But I get the feeling if Tony Khan thinks something is is good for the wrestling industry and he can do it and get away with it, he's going to do it. And I think that's what this is. 
I, I don't think Tony Khan is, is sitting there going like, this is going to be the best thing for us in the... Well, maybe he is actually, though, because maybe he is doing that. Maybe he is saying like, look, this promotional idea where we have talent relationships with all these companies, that this is what's best for us because we'll get access to greater talent. But even if it wasn't, I think he'd do it anyway. Even if it was good for the wrestling industry and not good for his company, I feel like Tony Khan would do it anyway. But that's just speculation. I have no idea. Honestly, though, this is fantastic. If you've been following Impact Wrestling, which I, I have since Don Callis took over, you have to just feel so good for the talent that they have on, on their roster that deserves a bigger spotlight. I'm talking about guys like Rich Swan, like Moose, like Sammy Callahan, like all the, the members of the Knockouts division I mentioned, like all the tag teams that I just mentioned. There's a lot of really talented wrestlers who have really come into their own over the last few years in Impact Wrestling who are going to really benefit from this angle with AEW. So now the fourth top story of the week was War Games. What a crazy week it has to be that the fourth top news story of the week was the War Games pay-per-view. I love the War Games pay-per-view. Every year, it's my favorite thing that NXT does. Ever since they did it in 2017. Like, if you go back and watch all the old War Games matches, which I have quite a bit. These versions that NXT have done knock a lot of them out of the park are way better in some cases. Now, obviously, if you go back to the 80s, there's some amazing four horsemen versus like Sting and Dusty and, and stuff like that. But when you get more into the 90s and they're done by like WCW, some of them are real shit, like real shit. <laughs> But not the ones that they've been doing on NXT in the last four years. In, in terms of just like action and cool stuff happening, the NXT War Games matches are like so far ahead uh, of anything else. But, but we had two War Games matches uh, on War Games this year. This is the fourth one. And so the women's War Games match was a little interesting. There's kind of a lot to unpack there. The, the first thing that probably should be talked about is that the, the babyface team, I hate using insider tech terminology like that. Like I'd rather just say like the fan favorite team, right? Because that's not insider terminology. You can be outside and watching it and notice that one team gets cheered. So they're the fan favorites. The fan favorites, for the first time, I think, in War Games history, got the advantage. Now, if you go back to like the 80s when they did war games, they would usually just do like a coin flip or the 80s or 90s. But in NXT, they usually do matches leading up to it where the winner gets the advantage for their team. So they had a ladder match on on last week's NXT. And it was, uh, was it Shotzi Blackheart and Raquel Gonzalez? Um, but anyway, Shotzi won. And so she earned the advantage for her team. It's like, well, all right then. And it kind of creates an interesting scenario because so often in wrestling, you see that the the heels or the unpopular the unpopular wrestlers will often um, be on the offense for a good portion of a match, and they'll be on the offense because of something underhanded they did, like something something unfair has led to the unpopular wrestler getting a sustained period of offense in a match. Maybe they stuck their thumb in the guy's eye. Maybe the ref didn't see something and they gave him a low blow or something like that. And one unfair advantage that unpopular wrestlers have often had in, in war games is the portion of the match where, like, you know, for that three-minute interval, they get a two-on-one advantage, and then they get a three-on-two advantage, and then they get a four-on-three advantage. So seemingly, it it's harder to get the fans behind the fan favorites if they are seen as having some unfair advantage in the match, right? So that's likely the reason why it's always the 
the unpopular wrestlers that get the advantage in this match. But like, how long are you going to do that for? How long are you going to do it where it's like, it's so clear that always the, the heels, the bad guys are getting the advantage at some point for the sake of keeping realism somewhere in wrestling's realm, you gotta have the baby faces get the advantage. And I think it really came down. I think finally somebody said, you know, one of these days, the good guys have to get the advantage. You want to do it here? Yeah, let's do it here. Okay. But there were things like, it never felt like the baby faces had that type of advantage. And here is why. Because Raquel Gonzalez came off as such a monster during the match. Like at one point when the baby faces had the three on two advantage, Raquel Gonzalez had taken out two of the baby faces. And I remember thinking, I was like, boy, they're really building up Raquel Gonzalez here. And then they would do some spots where Raquel Gonzalez and Rhea, Rhea Ripley were sort of facing off. And it was this idea that here are these two powerhouses finally, you know, pairing off with one another. So I think the idea was to get Raquel Gonzalez seeming like, like she was such a threat, like she's such a monster and so dominating that the baby faces didn't even have an advantage. She took them both out. Right. And so seemingly that makes the baby face team look weaker. Like how come, how come they're, they're not good enough to be able to stop Raquel Gonzalez with, with a three on two advantage. And the reason is, the majority of the motivation in this match was to get to a Raquel Gonzalez versus Io Shirai match. So anyway, so Raquel Gonzalez sort of prevented the one incident of the baby faces having the unfair advantage. And then the, uh, another incident of the baby faces having an unfair advantage was prevented when they just stopped Io Shirai from getting in the ring. And so they stopped Io Shirai from getting in the ring all the way past when Candice LeRae came in. So even though they didn't technically have the advantage in the match, before the match beyond, the heels had a four-on-three advantage. So even though they finally did, the baby faces had the, the numbers advantage, they did it in a way where actually two of the three times when they were supposed to have the advantage, they didn't. And right before the match beyond, the heels had the numbers advantage. So... Yeah, it was, it was a little creative, but there was a lot of fun um, uh, moments in this match. Most notably, when Io Shirai jumped off the cage with the um, garbage can on her head, I thought that was amazing. Later, however, she had the garbage can back on her head, and somebody gave her a double foot stomp, and it pancaked the garbage can so much that they couldn't even get it off her. Um. So, I mean, there was just so much action in this match. It was impossible to call it all. But uh, oh, another thing that happened in the match that bears noting, however, is uh, Shotzi Blackheart came off the ladder on top of Candice LeRae, who had a chair that was on top of her. And somewhere in there, they think LeRae may have broken her arm. Nothing official yet, but I think she's getting that checked out. Uh, and then the finish of the match was Raquel Gonzalez picking up Io Shirai and powerbombing her through a table and getting the pin. And so everything everything that they did here built up Raquel Gonzalez as the top wrestler in this match and a serious threat to Io Shirai's NXT Women's Championship, and that's going to be the next title match that we get. So, you know... I was cheering for Shotzi and Rhea Ripley and Ember Moon and, you know, and Io Shirai. That's it's four great wrestlers on that team. Nothing against the, the heels, but I was kind of, I, I just thought, you know, Shotzi's riding a freaking tank out to the cage there. It would have been a feel-good win for her team, but, you know, Shotzi Blackheart seems to be this, like, crazy popular wrestler who loses half her matches, you know, so... Uh, but anyway, it all made sense, and it, it, it builds to um, Raquel Gonzalez versus Io Shirai, and hopefully Candice isn't hurt too much, and hopefully Io Shirai didn't get sandwiched too badly in that trash can. Uh, then we had a match between Timothy Thatcher and Tommaso Ciampa that was all uh, built around uh, Thatcher working on Ciampa's injured neck, and it really felt to me like they had communicated to fans that, uh, you know, 
Champa's neck injury is really severe at this point and will always be a, a weakness for him in his matches. Uh, but in this particular match, he was able to overcome it. And he hit Willow's bell on Timothy Thatcher, and he picked up the win. So Champa hasn't lost a match since he lost to Karrion Cross at the In Your House Takeover event, or Takeover In Your House event. I'm not sure. Uh, and then Thatcher, I mean, Thatcher, he's 8-5. and five. I looked up the, the records. He's 8-5 and five in NXT singles matches, but it seemed like he was destined for bigger things after they had him beat Matt Riddle, but it's just sort of, you know, he's just sort of, he takes two steps forward and one step back or one step forward and two steps back or something like that. Uh, but Champa is the one who's going to move up the rankings as a result of uh, his win over Thatcher at TakeOver War Games. Uh, then Dexter Loomis defeated Cameron Grimes in a strap match. So that is the third gimmick match they've had in their rivalry. It was a haunted house of terror that Dexter Loomis won. Then a blindfold match just sort of ended, I think with Grimes running away. And then Loomis picks up the victory here in the strap match as well. So that might be the end of the feud. And Dexter, it's a move up the rankings for Dexter Loomis and down for Grimes. Johnny Gargano regained the NXT North American Championship from Leon Rush Ruff, excuse me, and uh, he needed a lot of help for this. He had a whole army of ghost-faced scream killer people come in and cause interference and take Damian Priest out of out of commission so he could pin Leon Ruff, win his third NXT North American Championship. And then at the end of the se- or end of the sort of segment there, Austin Theory was unveiled as one of the ghost face people, and he did the clever line of "It was me all along," and then points to himself. It was me, Austin. You know, ah, that was kind of funny. Then we get to the men's war games match, and the continuation of the feud between Pat McAfee and his Kings of NXT in the Undisputed Era. And going into this match, this was the fourth War Games match for the Undisputed Era. They went in with a 1-2 and two record. I felt they really needed to win this. You know, there's a, a the difference between being 2-2 two and two and 1-3 and three is pretty significant. And uh, so the Undisputed Era pick up the win here. It was Kyle O'Reilly who got the pin on Oni Lork, and he came off the top rope with a knee to a steel chair to the face of Oni Lorcan. And I wonder if Kyle O'Reilly is going to stay in the singles division here. One idea is he pins one half of the tag team champs, him and fish go after, uh, Birch and, and Lorcan for the tag titles, but it seems like they're going more with Bobby fish and Roderick strong as the undisputed era's tag team and Kyle O'Reilly and Adam Cole as singles. Of course, Kyle O'Reilly challenged Finn Balor at the last takeover. So, I want I you know I wonder if Kyle O'Reilly is going to stay in the singles division here. Um, you know this was the second takeover in a row oh, that he's been in the main event, and this year or this takeover he gets the win and undisputed era close out War Games four with their second War Games win. So one thing about NXT is. I really just kind of wonder what's going on with the NXT World Championship. You know, we, we haven't seen, like, Finn Balor's been out with a broken jaw. Karrion Cross had won the title, but then he was out with a separated shoulder. We saw a little vignette that I think was likely for Karrion Cross this week. I would have to imagine that if Cross comes back, you put him immediately into an opportunity to win the title back that he never lost. If Balor is back in time, I think you do Cross versus Balor. Um, but if you don't, I mean, you've got a lot of other guys like, you know, any, anybody who got a win tonight, I think would be in title contention, be it, um, you know, Adam Cole or Kyle O'Reilly, you could certainly put in there. Tomasa Ciampa picked up a victory, uh, not Gargano cause he's the North American champion again. So I, I would doubt they would put him in that mix again, Well, maybe they would, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe, hey, Dexter Loomis is leaving this feud with Cameron Grimes uh, undefeated. They're protecting him pretty hard. Maybe Dexter Loomis is in the title picture, but I think we'll probably find out a little bit more on NXT because it's going to be the NXT after TakeOver. So we'll, we'll get some the start of new storylines on Wednesday night.
Okay, and I think this is the last thing I want to talk about today. Yes, this is definitely the last thing that I want to talk about today. <laughs> so, last week when we did the show, at this time last week, WWE had nothing announced for TLC. I'm recording this at 4.30 on Monday, so... They tend to announce things in the next few hours, so who knows? Who knows what's happening on Raw tonight? But so now we've got five matches that are booked for the pay-per-view. I'm going to run them down. So the top one for the Universal Championship. And by the way, I consider the Universal Championship to be the top men's title in WWE because the Universal Champion beat the WWE Champion at Survivor Series. But that's okay. We can all have our own headcanon as to what matters at Survivor Series. That's mine. That's my headcanon. And if you can get through WWE without headcanon, more power to you. I have no idea how you do it. Uh, So for the Universal Championship, Roman Reigns versus Kevin Owens. I looked it up. This is the first world title match that Kevin Owens has gotten since the summer of 2019 when he challenged Kofi Kingston for the title. I didn't look it up. It's been a long time since he won the world title. I think he's only won the universal title that that one time. Uh, And then for for Roman Reigns, he's already defended the Universal Championship three times in a three-month reign, uh, which definitely fits with... The rule used to be you had to to defend it once every 30 days. And I think Brock Lesnar kind of scrapped that deal. But anyway, so uh, Roman's defended the title twice against Jey Uso and once against Braun Strowman since he won it at Payback this summer, which was held... One week after SummerSlam for some reason. So, anyway, Roman Reigns, you know, um, this has been quite the run for Roman. Based on, he's coming off of having defeated Drew McIntyre at Survivor Series. He hasn't lost. I don't even think he's come close to losing since he came back. And, you know, that should be a good match. Also booked for TLC on December 20th which will take place in the Tropicana Center. Oh, yeah, they moved to Tropicana Center on Friday. So I, eh, SmackDown is either the last show in Amway or the first show in Tropicana, I think. Uh, so anyways, at TLC, uh, for the SmackDown Women's Championship, which, again, I consider the top women's championship in WWE because the SmackDown Women's Champion beat the Raw Women's Champion at Raw. But again... We can all choose our own headcanon. Sasha Banks versus Carmella. This one's a little hard to make sense of if you require your wrestling to make sense. Carmella, she hasn't wrestled since Money in the Bank, uh, which was back in May. And she's sort of come back with a gimmick change where she's, I don't know. She is what she is, you know? (laughs) But then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, why is Carmella, why is Carmella getting this title shot? Because it can't just be you come out, you attack the champion, and you get a title shot, right? It has to, there has to be a reason for it. So my headcanon for this is that Carmella renegotiated her contract recently, and this was one of her demands. I don't know. It works as well as anything else. But for Sasha Banks, this is her first title reign where she's had a title, a televised title defense. Successful. She beat Bailey on SmackDown recently, and that was the first time she successfully defended a singles title um, on WWE programming. She actually has defended it on house shows, like a long time ago, but never on television. Um, so anyway... <laughs> This will be her shot to get her second consecutive title defense. Um, you know, when you look at the SmackDown women's division, Bianca Belair is undefeated on the main roster in singles matches. She's like 15 or 16 and 0. Natalia beat Bailey in like three minutes with a sharpshooter the other week there. And Bianca, Bell has, Bianca Belair has defeated Natalia as well. So... I don't know when Bianca Belair is getting her first crack at the title, but something tells me Bianca Belair is going to be a perennial title contender for years and years and years and years. 
Like when she's not the champion herself, that is. Which I think will be will frequently be the case. You don't start your main roster career with like a f- going 15 and 0 or 16 and 0 in singles matches. You know, unless you're pretty talented, unless they see something in you. So, you know, but Banks, Belair might be might not get a title shot in the near future because Sasha Banks is a very popular wrestler and Bianca Bell is a very popular wrestler. And of course, wrestling promotions like to book unpopular wrestlers against popular wrestlers. The babyface heel dynamic is what I'm saying. Bianca Belair is a babyface. Sasha Banks is a babyface. So that hurts her chances of getting a title shot soon. Um, you know, so you've, I mean, that's why you've got somebody like Carmella getting, getting a title shot right now. Like who are the, the baby faces or the, sorry, the heels on SmackDown. It's like Natalia, Bailey and Carmella, you know? So, so Carmella's getting a shot and there you go. And then for the WWE championship, we've got Drew McIntyre defending against AJ Styles. AJ won like a little mini tournament where six wrestlers each had singles matches, the winners of the singles matches. Then uh, fought in a triple threat. AJ Styles won the triple threat. He'll now go on to meet Drew McIntyre for the WWE Championship at TLC. Then we got an interesting match. Randy Orton's booked to wrestle The Fiend. And both of these wrestlers had like short, like one or two week long title reigns, world title reigns this year. Like The Fiend won the world championship or the universal championship at SummerSlam and then lost it a week later to Roman Reigns at Payback. Uh, Randy Orton beat Drew McIntyre for the WWE Championship and then like promptly lost it right back to Drew McIntyre uh, six days before Survivor Series. And now these two are wrestling. So it looks like this might be the start of a long feud between the two or the, the resurgence of a long feud for the two of them. Not resurgence, but you know what I mean. Reboot, I guess. Um, I mean, it's not going to be the same. Obviously, Randy Orton feuded with Bray Wyatt. Uh, this is The Fiend, so it's it's different. But anyway, I, I kind of feel like this might be a bit of a long, long feud that goes multiple pay-per-views. And I would say whoever comes out of this feud having won more than lost would definitely be in the title hunt for their for their brand. Oh yeah, they're both raw, right? Yeah. So I think whoever comes out of this, like if the Fiend can get can get by Randy Orton, how long until the Fiend and Drew McIntyre are clashing for the WWE Championship? I don't think I think Randy Orton could get one more crack at Drew McIntyre. Um you usually do in WWE. Like if you lose a title to someone, you usually get another match against them fairly soon. But I don't know if WWE will do that this time because they've had so many matches and they've traded the title back and forth. So we'll see. I would imagine whoever comes out of TLC, the winner here is likely in line for the next title shot. Uh, But it depends on how long this feud goes too. If it goes three months, a three-month feud between Orton and The Fiend, then whoever wins this feud is not getting a title shot for three months, which is taking you near WrestleMania. Um, and then Asuka and Lana will take on Shayna Baszler and Nia Jax for the WWE Women's Tag Team Championships. Uh, also at TLC, and that comes on the heels of Asuka and Lana beating Shayna Baszler and Nia Jax in two straight non-title matches. So there you go. We got five matches for TLC. We had none last week, and that's basically going to be it for this week. I mean, it, it was a, a big week between, you know, the passing of Pat Patterson and then everything that happened at, at Winter is Coming and then everything that happened at War Games. And then you got the five matches booked for TLC. It was a very, very big week. Um, next week now... Uh, we need to get caught up on what's going on with New Japan Pro Wrestling because they're going to finish off their best of the senior, Super Juniors and World Tag League. And then we move into sort of the road to Wrestle Kingdom and New Japan Pro Wrestling's biggest night of the year. We've also got some fun stuff going on with uh, MLW right now. We should, we should go back and, and take a look at Ring of Honor as well. Lots of fun stuff going on in the world of wrestling. Don't forget to check us out at SpoilerFreeWrestling.com. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter. We don't have an Instagram because fuck that shit. 
Um, and uh, thank you so much for supporting the content we put out. Really do appreciate it. Uh, I'm Ian from Spoiler Free Wrestling, and we'll we'll talk to you again next week. This was the worst ending to a podcast I've ever done. <laughs> Oh!